we're back. What the funk? And we've got the doctors in the house. You know, I had something show up on my arm recently, but I don't think that's something you guys can help me with. If I wanted to talk about climate, sustainability, ESG, you guys are probably more my guys as it relates to those things. So without further ado, Karthik Balakrishnan wanted to thank you for coming back. You were recently on an episode here with David Stewart of Greenfield Environmental Services. Karthik heads up Actual, uh, which does a lot of uh, modeling and forecasting of um, emissions and the ability to become more profitable in terms of how you can gain money back from some of the investments that you make and mapping out some of those larger scale initiatives that companies have. And Andrew Park, a fellow Granite Stater, my guy, really happy to have you on this podcast. Live for your die, man. That's right. Does that mean anything to you, Karthik? <laughs> not, 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 not specifically, but I'll so, find out soon. <laughs> every state has a motto, yes. right? You're from Maryland, right? And I don't know what the state motto is there. It's like, we eat crabs or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Football and crab cakes. That's what Maryland does. Well, every state has something, and most of them are pretty benign. Right. But New Hampshire's state motto is live free or die. And, and the license plate still have a picture of a man <laughs> that technically doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> right. And it hasn't for like two decades. So yeah, it's right. kind, of, kind of funny, right? Yeah. New Hampshire is different. But they actually do follow through with the motto of live free or die. There's no income tax, right? There's no sales tax on anything, but there is a tax on hot food and they get you pretty good for that. So it's sort of like the tourist tax is how they look at it. But for whatever reason, I was reading this, like there's actually a huge surplus of money in New Hampshire right now. So, so I don't know how they're getting all this money without any taxes, but it seems to be working out. I don't know. The other thing I always thought weird about New Hampshire is the fact that the state sells liquor. And yes. Apparently, they put the liquor stores off the interstates. You know, you get everybody coming across, you know, don't drink and drive, but <laughs> you got to come to the state liquor store off the interstate to come get your alcohol. Yeah. So I, I, went, to, I went to Brandeis, right, which is in Waltham, Massachusetts. And this is back when the blue laws were still intact, which means for whatever reason, you couldn't buy alcohol or beer in Massachusetts on Sundays. So people would always be like, oh, you're from New Hampshire? Yeah, I've been to New Hampshire. I'm like, what, you drove over the border to buy beer last Sunday? And they're like, yeah, how would you know? I'm like, that's where they get half the state revenue from. But eventually Massachusetts did away with that. and New Hampshire was all concerned. How, how are we going to survive? They found a way. Yeah, everyone. Alcohol, alcohol will always be there. I don't think we have to worry about people not buying liquor anytime soon, right? <laughs> New Hampshire's doing just fine. Like you said, surplus of money. It's a great state. It was a great state to grow up in. Amazing. For sure. Amazing state. Yeah. So I, I'm from the, the Plymouth area. Where, uh, where did you grow up? Keene. So Keene, New Hampshire. Keene. Keene High. Keene High, Keene Middle, Simons Elementary, Keene. And then somehow you ended up in Boulder, University of Colorado. So family moved out to Boulder area when I was 16. Okay. So moved to 
middle of high school is kind of weird, kind of weird time in life. So I, I had every intent to go back East, join yeah. some friends after I finished high school in Colorado and ended up meeting my wife, went on our first date the day after, uh, I graduated high school. So we were young, didn't think it was anything at the time, but, uh, quickly, quickly became something. And, uh, so I, I ended up doing a year back in the East coast, but quickly transferred back to CU and, uh, okay. and, uh, yeah, studied geology and, um, went through the great geology program at CU. It's one of the top in the world. Really? Um, consistently. Cool. Yeah. U.S. Uh, News and World Reports or whatever that that survey is, uh, they're consistently top three. At one time they were number one. They've probably slipped back to two or three, but it's a um, phenomenal program. And huh. then, uh, went, decided to, to do what probably most people would recommend not and went from Boulder, Colorado to College Station, Texas, <laughs> which is quite the transition and wound up at Texas A&M for grad school. So that was, uh, that was something. So you just kept getting warmer, right? Started in icy New Hampshire, right? Came to kind of moderate Boulder and then found yourself in warm. Yeah. yeah which is funny, station. which is funny, right? Cause I hate heat. So yeah, I, I won't live that far South, hopefully ever again. We moved to college station. It was 2011. It was one of the hottest summers, I think on record at the time. <laughs> Perfect. It was like every day was like a hundred degrees. And my wife and I were just like, what the fuck did we just do to ourselves? Like I was trying to like figure out before I even started my graduate work, like how do I just get my master's and get the hell out of here? Cause right. I have made a massive mistake. And like, I got like admissions hitting me up, asking me to go to like fish camp, which like, if you don't know what fish camp is at Texas A&M, it's basically like, it's where they like brainwash all the undergrads and, <laughs> and students into like, you know, they're not cheers, they're yells and just the oh, whole yeah. like Texas A&M culture. And like, well, no, I'm coming here to study and be a grad student, not, not do that kind of stuff. And it was, it was a real weird, like real weird time. And fast forward to when I finished my degree, um, damn dude, I fell in love with that place. Like Texas really? A&M was like, it, what an incredible school. Like there's a reason there's a saying, I think that, that you'll hear Aggie say from time to time and from, from the outside looking in, you can't understand it. And from the inside out, you can't explain it. And that's, that's so true, right? Like college station, such a random spot. A&M seems like such a random school, but the culture, the academics, obviously the football and the athletics, like we just, we absolutely fell in love with college station. Um, not enough to stay after I graduated, but it was a, it was a real fun place to go to school. And what did you get your master's in? So, so actually did my master's and my PhD there and it was in climate science. Um, so really kind of the best way I describe what I studied in graduate school is if you've ever seen the movie from the early two thousands, the day after tomorrow, um, sure. where Dennis Quaid and Jake Gyllenhaal are climate scientists trying to convince the world that like, of the impending ice age. And, um, really that ice age is driven by the fact that ocean circulation in the North Atlantic, which pulls a lot of heat to high latitudes in the Northern hemisphere suddenly turns off. And by disrupting that circulation and that, that heat transport earth plunges into an ice age. And while the scenario in the movie is highly unlikely to happen, um, you know, 
I studied how, you know, uh, changes in the strength of that ocean current modulated climate through time. Um, so that was really what I studied mm. had 0.0 interest in getting into oil and gas. Wow. Even though you were around it a little bit at A&M, right? Cause there, there's a pretty big petroleum engineering department there. And certainly it's close to Houston, which is the epicenter. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So you finished up, I think, around 2016. And then what uh, What did you do for work with this kind of climate sustainability uh, doctorhood? PhD? Uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, my wife and I were just talking about it like the other day, like what a low point I was looking for a job. But I mean, look, growing up in New Hampshire, you don't think about oil and gas. Not at uh, all. Doing your undergrad in Boulder, oil and gas, it's, it's not uh, exactly the top of everybody's mind. Um, but it was A&M that kind of shaped kind of my trajectory because I, I was going to go get my PhD and be a professor. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I had stuck on that track, I'd probably still be some junior college faculty in the middle of like Hayes, Kansas teaching still trying to like get like some big D one, like tenureship. Right. And, and that just, it just wasn't what I wanted. And I had a friend that worked at Shell and he's like, come on, dude, like just do an internship for like the summer. And I think it was 2013, you know, and you're like a broke graduate student. And I was like, nah, man, like I just oil and gas, oil and gas is the devil, dude. Like, I don't want to touch oil and gas. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Like these money hungry companies, like no way I'm going to get in bed with that. And then he told me how much I'd make in three months. (laughs) Probably changed my mind. I I guess everyone has a price, right? Like you can try, you can try something once. And so. But the thing that just opened my eyes about working as an intern at Shell was how forward thinking the company was. And like mm. they were thinking about hydrogen cells before hydrogen cells were a thing. They were thinking about renewable and hydro and all kinds of like alternative energy. And they were really like forward thinking and, and environmentally conscious. And I went, wow, like it it's not what I think it is. It's not, it doesn't align with the perception I had. And so coming out of school and having a hard time finding a job. For someone who uh, had a lot of experience looking at ocean dirt, uh, oil and gas kind of found me. Fascinating. So did you go like on an offshore rig or were you in a laboratory? What what was the research, pure research? I worked with seismic data at Shell. So I sat in an office all day. I mean, obviously as an intern at Shell, you get some cool exposure to other parts of their business. Um, But but mostly, um, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of tangent what I was doing to my doctoral research. I was working on some stuff with the the West African monsoon and some some cores off the coast of Nigeria that Shell had that they had an interest in me building an age model for, and I had an interest in kind of studying for the climate aspect. So um, it was just really cool how they just they were supportive and and forward thinking, and um, it just it just changed my whole mind, right? And so I found a found a job with a small lab company eventually, and it's kind of worked my way up the ladder to where I am today with SPL. Well, you said models, and I know that that makes Karthik's ears perk up. <laughs> it, it, it does. You know, it's um, everything starts with a model. Models are always wrong, but they kind of tell you kind of where to start searching. Um, I think everything starts with a good, bad model, the way I look at things. <laughs> no doubt. So when did you move back to Colorado? Right after graduated. So we came back to Colorado in 2016, 2015, I forget. And um, just started working. 
pretty much working my way up the the food chain here. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, love the Colorado way of life. So it's kind of hard to leave once you get, once you get a taste of it, it's kind of hard to, yeah, kind of hard to leave. Right, man. I agree. I, I, I really like it here too. And SPL is, is a fascinating company to me. So of course my podcast, so this is always all about me. Everybody knows that, but, um, just kidding. <laughs> SPL. So when I, when I first kind of had this concept of going out on my own and starting Funk Futures and doing some fractional sales, marketing, business development work for companies, one of the first ones that hit my radar was someone's like, you should talk to these guys at SPL. I'm like, oh, I've never heard of them. Must just be some little company, you know, down in Houston. And I, and I started to learn more about the organization and truly SPL is like, the biggest company in oil and gas that nobody knows about. That's, At least I didn't know about. But what, what do you think about that statement? The biggest company in oil and gas that, that very few know about. That is, I think, our new marketing slogan for the year because <laughs> that's a lot of the conversation we have here, you know, internally is how do, you know, we've kind of built this niche for a long period of time. So for, probably, you know, we've been around 75 years and, uh, and, primarily focused on oil and gas measurement in labs. Uh, that's really the legacy of our company. In the last five, 10 years, we've transformed into so much more uh, through acquisitions and, and organic, um, you know, organic growth as well. And we, we have these conversations of like, how do we get our customers to know that, yeah, we can do this, but we can also do, you know, 10 other things along with it and just getting more people and more exposure because we are a large company. We're six, almost 600 people now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got offices in every major, uh, oil producing region of the United States. We're about to open in Pittsburgh. Um, nice. we're looking at Alaska. Um, so there's so many things that we can come and, and help customers with that. I think you put it perfectly. Like we, we are the biggest company. Very few people have ever heard about in the oil and gas industry. Fascinating. And, and I, I, as I dug in more to the company, one of the things that I hope I don't reveal too much here that they were curious about was some of what I could do in terms of the, the connections to the production accounting landscape, because you guys take a very scientific approach to the hydrocarbon, whereas most of the production accounting and allocation companies take more of a technology or accounting centric approach to it. So you guys actually felt like your numbers were a little more accurate than the production numbers and the allocation numbers that oil and gas companies believe to be correct, which I thought was really interesting because I just hadn't heard that slant on it before. But that made me really think about like, okay, these guys are like, for lack of a better term, like nerdy. You really care about the science of the product that you're dealing with, maybe even more than some of the companies that produce them, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jeremy. Like our, our, everything we do is, is based in data. Um, and you know, we, we feel very strongly, we create a ton of data, right? My laboratories run 300,000 tests a year Mm. on hydrocarbon products. So we generate massive amounts of, of data on the product that's coming out of the wellhead. And really want to, you know, we value that and we, and we see the value in it and we hope other people uh, see that value as well, that, 
that applying that data and that knowledge of your product um, is useful for, for accuracy in everything you're doing. And so um, when we're looking for partnerships and we're looking for opportunities to collaborate, we, we try to look for people who are like-minded in that sense that, that really value the data um, that we're producing because we feel like it's a, it's a differentiator for our services. Mm. And, uh, you know, to bring Karthik into the fold a little bit, I'm curious, Andrew, and, and I'm sure this will lead to some follow-up. How does then testing those products tie into climate and sustainability? Yeah, so good question. Uh, so a few, few different things, right? A lot of the work we do, um, in particular on the liquid side, is, is being used in emissions, you know, whether it's site-specific emissions factors or um, air quality, right? They're looking at uh, air quality um, and, and what are your BTEX components and VOCs and HAPs and, and all that. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of, you know, if you're making a model, you're doing a process model, you're doing a facility model and you want to know the type of product there. Um, there's, a, I think, a lot of usefulness in taking the data to ground truth model and doing a data model validation um, with it. Um, so you can, you can see how accurate your simulations are. Um, there's, there's a bunch of different uh, applications to use the data uh, for climate and emissions uh, reasons. And then, you know, as a company, we've kind of embraced the fact that, you know, I think also in our DNA is Eldar. And so we've been building out our uh, emissions and, and Eldar platform uh, bought some OGI cameras. We've got some techs out there doing uh, quad OA inspections with customers. We, we actually brought on a company, cool startup. I don't know if you saw this the other day, uh, Aerolytics. Which yeah, is Calgary, a, an, right? Yeah, an emissions uh, man, data management uh, pr- platform out of Calgary with some real bright uh, stars there. So Emmy and Liz are, are Forbes 30 under 30 in energy. Nice. Um, so they're they're absolute badass group of, of people at Aerolytics that we're working with on our our emissions data management side. So um, we've we've kind of just tried to embrace the embrace the opportunity rather than try to resist. Yeah. How are you, how are you seeing kind of um, the the role the data has to play in terms of sort of going from just kind of ongoing operations as some of these pressures on on these producers are changing, those changing market conditions, helping them kind of react. Um, is there is a role for data to play there or is it very much a kind of keeping things moving? Yeah, and, and I don't know if people would disagree with this, but I think one of the hard parts right now about uh, the use of data is when it comes to emissions inventories, when it comes to, you know, uh, assessing climate risk and just, and there's so many different sources of data and there's very little data standard in mm-hmm. which I think presents everything in an apples to apples way so that, you know, okay, well, that's, that's cool. Um, and, and look, there are frameworks, right? There are some frameworks for, for emissions uh, inventory reporting, right? Like the EPA has some frameworks, but like, especially when we start thinking about like ESG and, and people are really trying to get into this, like, you know, you know, like climate risk dis- disclosures and, and other types of, you know, uh, presenting other, you know, climate related data in, in a certain way. There, there's really no standard that I think is, is making it difficult for people to kind of have a conversation about what the data says because it's, it's been constructed in various ways. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think I mean that's that's where sort of having the power of you know doing so many measurements like you're doing can be can be valuable because you've got one set of uh, of information to look through. Um, what 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 are kind of the big challenges you see in sort of that data standardization? Um, as well, what data do you get? Right. Yeah. I mean, you could. Yeah, yeah. I think you, you know first. I think you have to find the like minded individuals that see the value in the data. True. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then if you meet someone that understands the value in the data. Um, I mean, you could spend a billion dollars trying to chase all the right data points. Mm-hmm. And so I think, at least for me, in conversations I have with folks, the, it seems like, you know, there's still a lot of discussion right now in the industry about what are those data points that we should be collecting? Um, what is the advantage of additional data? How much better is it? You know, what's the, what's the cost benefit? Is the juice really worth the squeeze? Mm-hmm. when it comes to taking all these measurements and all these data points, right? And so I think that conversation is still ongoing and, um, and, and people are still trying to find their way a little bit there, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, do you think today we, it's a question of not having enough data or is it a question of not having the right data or is it somewhere in between? Oh man, I, that's a good <laughs> question. I, I, I guess for me, I would say it's, it's probably somewhere, it's somewhere in between, um, you know, I think there's there's additional data that probably could be getting gathered, or or companies that could be gathering more data. Um, I, I'm I'm shocked, like in the emissions uh, world, I'm shocked at people that still just use basin wide default numbers as their emissions factors. Sure. Right, like like in North Dakota, the the Bakken default is gigantic. It's huge. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why would you not want to more accurately quantify your site-specific emissions because you're probably using a factor that's double or triple mm-hmm. uh, for your well that's now seven or eight years old? Um, so I, I think, again, there, there are good players and bad players out there. And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, I think that one of the things is just the conversation we're having around energy and climate right now in terms of getting more people to buy in, more people to value the data, more people to value the conversation in general, is is how we approach the why. Like, why is it important? Because I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of people uh, that that don't necessarily agree on the why yet. Like, like, what do you do with the data once you have it? Is it is it helping you make a decision? Yeah, or even yeah. even a level even a level above that. Like, is it worth it? Like. Yeah. Is there really a climate emergency? Mm-hmm. You know, is it real? Like, there are pe- there's still a lot in the the echo chamber of LinkedIn. I see so much stuff on a daily basis that CO two is not a greenhouse gas. Yeah. Uh, that you know, like they're like they're very basic climate principles that are still being questioned by certain individuals who have a very large voice mm-hmm. and following when it comes to social media. And I think it just continues to cast that doubt in some people's mind of like, you know, I mean, the reality is, is getting rid and getting, and sorry if I'm going off topic, but like getting rid of oil and gas is not a practical solution for anything, right? Like we all know that, Um, but there's people that say, you know, I think why, you know, oil and gas is never going away. So why do we have to do this? Mm. Right. There is no climate emergency. And so I think, that conversation needs to find some some better voices and some agreement more within the industry to get more people to buy in and say, okay, now I understand why the state is important. And 
Um, I know what data I need. Now I'm going to put a plan together, an actionable plan to go get it all. That I mean, that's definitely not off topic. I'd say it's very much on topic. And this subject is, it's hot. And maybe it's hot for me and for all of us on this podcast because we live in this universe, certainly carbon, uh, Karthik with uh, carbon emissions modeling and and uh, forecasting and reduction. And Andrew, you're in your your full blown analysis and and history and and current job in sustainability and climate. So the question I'd want to put out to you guys is: There's so much noise out there right now, and and nobody knows what to believe. Right? You talk to people on one side. The world is coming to an end, right? The the oceans are rising and we're all screwed and the glacier caps are melting. What what are we going to do? And then other people saying it's no big deal, right? So like what's the truth, right? From a couple of experts here. Like wh- where are we in this whole climate emergency, need for energy transition? Like that whole question is kind of why I wanted you guys to come on. So I'm curious, like tell me the truth. You want to go first, Karthik, or should I take it? Well, you're, you're the climate expert, so I'll let you jump on that. And so I like I, to say, so let's. Yeah. So there's climate change, there's global warming, there's climate emergency. Climate change is natural. Climate has and always will change. It will never be static. It will never be the same. Global warming is a human-induced element of that, that, that I like to say global warming is the warming caused directly by humans. Climate emergency is basically the catastrophist version of, you know, the alarmist version of global warming in that, yeah, we're all going to die. We've got 10 years left. Yeah. I think that if you look at at the data, it's indisputable when it comes to, yes, humans are having an impact on the environment. I don't know how you, you argue against that. Um, you can simply just use basic models, climate models run it with natural forcings to try to replicate what we see today. And you can't do it. You have to have the human CO2 component in a model to basically reproduce the warming we see today. I think the question is, is that warming, what is that warming going to lead to, right? Like Steve Coonan, I think has done a fantastic job of in his book, Unsettled, talking about like, from a very scientific perspective, you know, I think what we know with certainty and what we don't know with certainty, right? And I think we don't know, like people go, well, one degree Celsius, that's not a lot, right? But in a climate system that I think is very delicately balanced, um, it's hard to really wrap our heads, even with the best climate models and, and observations in the world, what that truly means until it's probably too late. And mm. um you know, yeah, I guess from from that point of view, um, there is absolutely a human-induced component to, to climate that that we're responsible for. But is uh, is it really justifiable to say we need to get off fossil fuels in 10 years? And, you know, if not, we're all going to die. It's That's completely overplayed. Yep. Yeah. I think, yeah. When, when I think about, you know, climate emergency and sort of the, the human role, I think a big part of the challenge is how interdependent these systems are on each other, right? So one of the reasons it's so difficult to get fossil fuels is because you have a lot of things that use fossil fuels and you can't just, you know, snap your fingers and get rid of them. Um, you know, if I walk over to my bus stop instead of driving my car, that bus runs on diesel, 
right? So yes, I'm polluting less, but there's diesel that's, that's going into that tank and it's driving around the neighborhood, picking people up and dropping people off. Um, I think when I think about emergency, I think about it as sort of the urgency to act, right? When you have systems that are very complex, that take a lot of money and time and people to come together to transform. So, you know, when it comes to a climate emergency, you know, where, where folks are really talking about is hitting net zero targets of, you know, 2030, 2040, 2050 is where most of these are. Um, we're talking about there's, you know, SBTI curves, one and a half degrees, two degrees, various targets that people set. Um, but there's a reason why these, these targets are, you know, a few decades out because it's a tremendous lift to make these changes. The flip side of that is if you don't act with urgency, you won't get there, right? Um, it's impossible to get to 2045, 2046, 2047 and say, okay, now it's time to act because we're two years from the deadline. Um, a lot of things that, that get installed have very long lifetimes. Um, so if you're, you know, there's, a, there's this whole debate now on, on Twitter about, you know, gas stoves and induction stoves. And it's, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, someone going to send folks after you to, uh, uh, to, to, to steal your, uh, your stove and, uh, and replace with an induction one. Um, but the reality is, you know, if you're doing a remodel and you're, you're installing certain, uh, appliances at home and then certain ways of, of heating and cooling your house, those decisions you make today are going to, the impact of those decisions are going to be felt for 20, 30, 40 years because that's how long this equipment lasts. Um, so there's an emergency in terms of, you know, how do we start making decisions as organizations? How do we start acting? Um, because if you don't, then you certainly get to a point where uh, you've kind of gotten so far that it is impossible to act um, yeah. without seeing, you know, the, the really, um, really catastrophic impacts. I think one of the other things that's that's quite interesting, it's all about risk and risk mitigation, right? It's, it's impossible to say, like, looking today, well, this storm was caused by, uh, you know, climate change or, or human-induced versus, you know, this would have happened. No, there's storms just as big uh, a few years ago. But I think one of the big challenges is that a lot of the impacts are felt outside of systems that you would think of as being climate related. So when you think about um, Southwest Airlines melting down, right? Um, why do they melt down? Um, if you look at how they do crew scheduling, um, that software was built in a world where you didn't suddenly have the entire air airspace grinding to a halt with crew in all these random cities. Um, it was designed in a world where maybe an airport shuts down for a few hours because thunder and lightning. That's a normal thing. Right. But for an entire region of the country to just come to a stop for days on end, that's something that their IT system just couldn't handle. And so when we talk about climate risks, there's the physical risks, but there's a lot of systems that assume that here's how we run our business. And when climate starts to kind of get in the way, you know, Southwest IT budget really shouldn't be affected by climate change, but somehow they're not going to spend orders of magnitude a billion dollars. And that's a climate adaptation cost which doesn't show up in the climate adaptation calculus. So it turns into a risk, risk mitigation, risk management problem, um, which is where the word emergency starts to come up. It's like, wait a minute, you know, uh, who calls something emergency? In many cases, it's the, uh, the insurance companies. And they're starting to say, wait a minute, have we properly factored all this risk in? You got to start thinking about things a little bit differently. I think, I think you make an interesting point about uh, sense of urgency and, and pledges that companies are making, right? I always chuckle when I see a, oh, we're going to make this pledge to be net zero by 2050 or something mm -hmm. like that. 
Because the reality is the people making those pledges will not be in that boardroom yeah. <laughs> when they have to be held accountable for sure. those in 20, in 25 years, right? I think the real interesting pledges are the, the, the 2030 goals that companies are setting, right? Or like the one I'm really interested, automobile manufacturers keep doubling down on this EV uh, profile, right? And like GM has said, hey, we're not selling gasoline vehicles after 2025, I think. Like they're 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 all electric by 2025 or 2026, something along those lines. And I'm really curious to see how they pull that off because, um, again, you know, in the ignorance of the general public when it comes to to energy and renewables, um, you know, if you don't like the cartel OPEC owns over setting oil and gas price and supply, what do you think China is going to do to the metals market? for EV manufacturers trying mm. to lithium and nickel and, and all the other metals that they need for, for their technologies. So I think that's going to be a real, the 2030 goals are going to be really interesting in the next few years to see what kind of progress is made on them. Yeah, the, the short, the, the really long-term pledges are, are definitely, I think, where you start to get into a lot of issues around, you know, what ESG really is. Right. When, when a company says we're going to be net zero by 2050 and they're not taking action today, do they deserve to have a high ESG rating because they've made a pledge? Anyone can make a pledge. It's just you, you put out a press release. Um, and there's a huge gap that we're seeing between pledge and action. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see a lot of, I think, politicization of what is ESG. And I think a lot of it comes down to the heart of, um, you know, is, is there actually something here? Are people actually following through or are they just saying things to, to win brownie points with the public? I think ESG has kind of, it's been on a very interesting evolution. Um, it, it felt like ESG was embraced when everyone was kind of bored and didn't have much to do during COVID. <laughs> and like, it kind of like came to the forefront of like, man, let's talk about ESG since there's not much going on in the world. and and everyone has kind of taken ESG to be in, you know, everyone thinks about it in the context of the E, right? right but the right. S and the G really, you know, there's, there's climate and there's emissions and there's the environmental conversation that we have. And that's, that's a fraction. That's a piece of ESG, right? ESG is, well, yeah. Okay. Are you good stewards of the environment? Are you set up for the future? Are you good to your employees? Um, how, you know, how is your leadership motivated and, and incentivized? Right. So, I think the conversation between you know climate and energy and ESG are oftentimes misconstrued um, in everyday vernacular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the way that we look at it is you know ESG are actually very very interlinked. You know we're not we're not extracting oil to just burn it. We're using it for transportation, for you know generating power, for things like that. Um, there's a social need to do certain things. That has an environmental cost associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our perspective on ESG is very much, you know, that pledge is fine. You have to make a pledge. That's kind of your, your line in the sand of here's what we're going to do. But why do you exist as a business? Why is the thing you're doing need to exist? Then the environmental part comes in and says, well, there's a constraint. I've made a pledge. Here's a curve I've got to follow. Here's my constraint curve. How do I fulfill my social goal as a business? in a way that constrains this curve. So if you're making automobiles, if you are an airline, if you are a telecom company, um, you know, maybe the answer for your ESG is 
yeah, we want to connect these rural communities, but we're not going to keep helicoptering in barrels of, of diesel for the generator. Maybe we'll put, you know, solar or wind, or maybe we're an air with this geothermal, uh, or maybe the social need is so great that we will continue helicoptering in barrels of diesel because communicate, you know, communications for that community is really critical. That's worth that environmental cost. Um, but there is a, there's a difference, I think, between how different people view ESG. And I think that's part of where um, the divisiveness we're seeing is some people think of it as a spreadsheet and accounting thing, and other people think right. of it like we're actually going to do something and they're playing in the same arena and they mean different things. Yeah. No, th- this is, <laughs> and it's very interesting, I think, to, to see what ESG means to oil and gas and non oil and gas companies. I think I, the feedback I get is it's a lot of greenwashing within the oil and gas community, whatever ESG is. And until our hand is forced to do something, 98% of the companies are not going to be proactive about whatever ESG means. McCarthy, I know you work with a lot of companies outside of the oil and gas industry and some within. And I'm curious what you're seeing from the outside. Is there still that level of this is greenwashing and we're not sure about this for non-oil and gas companies as well? So I think I think what's interesting is outside of the non-oil and gas companies, there is a lot more direct exposure to the consumer. The consumer has a lot more choice in terms of what they do, you know, in terms of the clothing they buy, in terms of the food they eat, et cetera. Um, it's not perfect, right? I mean, uh, people are still buying fast fashion. They're still... Um, you know, picking something that tastes better over something that may be, you know, have a lower environmental footprint. And I think that's natural, right? People are going to do those things. They're not going to have the carbon content as the, uh, or the carbon emissions as the only thing that's considered when they're deciding what to eat. If you want something that tastes good, you're going to pick what you're, what you're, what you want to eat at that point. Um, but there's a lot of pressures. Um, there is regulatory pressure. Supply chains are very globally interlinked. So regulation in the EU. Um, flows through the supply chain and affects investments here in the U.S. because that company has a factory that is making parts that go into an assembly that's going to be subject to some EU carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, and I think that the tighter you're coupled with a worldwide system, um, the more you have to be cognizant of this because ESG, I think, there is kind of a, it's an overloaded term. Different people read different things into it. But in many ways, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is an ESG bill in many, many ways, because um, there's money for social things, there's money for environmental things, but there's things happening in the EU, there's things happening in Asia that fall in that bucket broadly, but in very specific ways. And they all interplay really differently depending on where in that supply chain you sit. Karthik, what, what's, what do you think is going to drive people to embrace ESG more? Think it's regulation, or do you think for especially outside of oil and gas consumer activism? Right. So, like, is it the government telling companies you have to be an ESG savvy company, or is it consumers aligning themselves with brands that embrace ESG? Right. Like, I stopped buying North Face in Patagonia because they hate on my industry. Right. right? And, uh, you know, like there's brands that I buy because they are sustainable or, you know, more environmentally friendly, right? And I'm just curious, what do you think is going to be more powerful at advancing ESG? I actually think it's, uh, it's ROI. 
Um, I think where you're going to see ESG really advance is when companies start to say that here are invest, you know, here's investments we can make in our capital assets. Um, you know, capital assets don't last forever. Trucks wear out. Factories have to be, you know, uh, redesigned and retooled. Equipment doesn't, you know, has a finite lifetime. As we're going through and upgrading our facilities, redesigning our facilities, et cetera, what are investments that we can make that have lower cost of operations? How do we build a supply chain that has lower waste? Um, lower waste means lower inputs, right? How do we, um, if you're in fashion, right, that dyeing clothes is a huge wastewater cost. Well, there is a, as there's additional regulations around what you can you know, pollute the water with, um, there's a return in terms of better dyeing processes that uh, don't pollute the water downstream and, and, and uh, poison drinking water for people, right? So there's, there's an ROI component, there's a regulation component. I think the consumer uh, component is certainly there. Because if you're able to make more with fewer inputs, you can, you know, there's going to be pressure to pass those on. I think that there's been a tendency over the last five or 10 years for people to think about things as there being a green premium. Hey, we'll put green on it and we'll make the label look like it's sustainable and we can charge, you know, $6 for a bag <laughs> of cheese, um, <laughs> which is, you know, that's greenwashing. Um, but I think what you're going to start to see is as the cost curves for a lot of greener things, um, more sustainable options, actually start to come down where energy becomes cheaper, where transportation becomes cheaper, where costs become less volatile, the more sustainable options over time actually become cheaper to make, cheaper to sell, you get a green discount. And then it becomes an ROI argument. We're not there yet. We're not going to be there in every industry. I think certain industries going sustainable, we're just going to have to say that there are going to be higher prices or we're not willing to accept a higher price. Therefore, this particular thing will not will never become sustainable. And we just have to live with it because it's necessary. But there's going to be shades of um, of outcomes. Mm. And this is so a question that I want to put out there to both of you guys. So, Andrew, good question, right? You kind of asked, is this something that's at a regulatory level or an individual choice level? What's going to drive ESG? I feel like this is coming, but I'm just really curious. So are we going to start being tracked? Are we going to be start giving receiving a score for our own personal carbon footprint. Do those types of apps exist today? And will this become mandatory at the individual level that will start being tracked and effectively having to deal with our own Inflation Reduction Act penalties where you're emitting too much yourself, Mr. Funk, Dr. Parker, Dr. Balakrishnan. Now you're going to get taxed more. I want Karthik to answer that first. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, honestly, I don't think that you're going to see that level of uh, tracking. I mean, part of the big challenge, right, is that there is there are apps out there to hey, let's estimate your footprint, and and how do they do it? They, you know, they tap into your your credit card and they say, well, you spent this much at Safeway, and you know, on average, a you know a dollar of groceries results in this much emissions, and therefore that's your footprint. But that's like using not just a basin wide you know, emissions factor, <laughs> that's sort of like using a, a statewide emissions factor for all the things that are happening in the state. Well, you could buy a dollar of kale or a dollar of, you know, ground beef, and they're going to have very different footprints, but it's going to look the same. Um, I think, you know, where, where the consumer has a role to play is in sending signals um, into what, here's where investments happen. Um, and there's certainly uh, behavior changes you can make, right? Do you, do you need to drive two minutes to the corner or could you just walk for five minutes. Um, but at the end of the day, um, what's really important is those signals going to the folks who, you know, with a single capital decision can uh, 
basically undo lifetimes worth of emissions. And, and that's where the bang for the buck really is. Um, and that's where you're going to see that pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I would hate to see a world where, uh, in individuals held, held accountable for their own carbon footprint. I think that would be pretty, would be a pretty tough sell and the accuracy would be mm. highly questionable for the reasons Karthik pointed out. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I agree with what Karthik's saying, right? I think and that's why I kind of asked the question earlier about consumer behavior um, because you know, I know that for, for myself, again, I, I work in oil and gas, but I also want to leave the planet a little bit better for my my son. And so, yeah, like I will align my shopping habits with with brands that are uh, aligned with those values. And, you know, as a skier, uh, most outdoor brands are very anti-oil and gas. For sure. Um, you know, Screw Patagonia and North Face. I don't. I don't wear those anymore. I wear a brand uh, that another sustainable brand that that uh, does a lot to to reduce their carbon footprint. And so I'll support it. I guess until they openly hate on oil and gas, and then I'm going to have a <laughs> pretty expensive uh, moral question to figure out because I'm highly invested in their outerwear. But I, I just think that that yeah, the consumers are really going to drive. You know, companies will too, but. I think, you know, companies behave based on their consumer and what the consumers want. And so I think individually, there's probably more power than, than a government voice. And I, we probably don't have enough time to get into it, but because I'd like to hear what Karthik has to say on this, but just, you know, the, I think this is one of the problems that we're having right now as, as kind of a country and just the regulatory environment is kind of like out in front of what really is possible when it comes to, you know, tracking emissions, reporting emissions, um, ESG scores, the whole nine yards. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's kind of forcing companies to greenwash a little bit because they've got to do something for the public, you know, perception of their organization. Totally. And they're being forced into that corner. But everything they're doing is, it's just a, it's really a distraction from what could be real progress. And it's, it's unfortunate to see that happening on somewhat of a, a, a broad scale here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, it's tough for organizations to, to, to make any kind of budgetary commitment to changing unless they're forced to, to make that change, right? Otherwise they just get business as usual. Yep. And so, Typically, what you know, what we see a lot of is there is that consumer pressure. You know, we want to buy more products that are built in a way that is, you know, using uh, more natural fibers. We work with a lot of folks who who make, uh, um, you know, wool for for use in very high quality clothing. Um, so they're seeing a lot of those signals. Then there's a commitment from you know the executive teams at these companies, uh, and then they they're they're forced to follow through. But part of the challenge is that unless you have an executive level mandate or commitment. Um, it's very difficult for these companies to then invest. Um, and so this is sort of the natural progression where you promise to do something and then, oh, they, they actually meant it. They actually, <laughs> they actually want us to follow through. So I guess we'll put money there. You're and actually going to make us do it now? Yeah, exactly. And, and oh, yeah, I think yeah. that's sort of the, the, the turbulent point in time where we're at is, you know, something like 90% of global GDP is covered by a net zero pledge or mandate, which means that either 
90% of, you know, 90% of companies have either made a pledge or they're a supplier to a company that has made a pledge. So they've got to get there, you know, by 2050 or 2040 or 2030. Um, and some of those points in that nodes of supply chains are starting to face pressure today of, Hey, you're greenwashing. Your missions went up, right? We saw this with, um, with companies like Microsoft where they pledged to be net negative by 2030. And in 2021, their emissions went up by like 13, 14%. Okay. You still got to get to the negative. <laughs> Go How are you going to do that? Right. Well, one of the examples I, I like to, I like to use for this kind of conversation is look what happened a few years ago with um, Royal Dutch Shell, right? So Shell was forced by a court in the Netherlands to reduce their uh, carbon footprint, I believe in half. It was some crazy number for for an oil major to basically, they said, you have to be uh, this much less than your emissions by 2030. An impossible ask. Well, what happened? Well, the repercussion of that was Shell immediately turned around and put their Permian assets up for sale. Right. Right. And so what now you have is a game of emissions hot potato where you're basically getting it off the books but you're not really getting it out of the atmosphere. So Shell's going to look like, oh, hey, look, yeah, we made a big emissions reduction year <laughs> over year. It's awesome. Well, no, you know, they, I forget who they sold those assets to, but, you know, it's the same, same deal with like BP in Alaska, right? They sold their, their Alaska asset to someone else to get those emissions off their books. And ultimately, as one of the largest oil and gas companies in the United States, they're going to operate that play probably a lot more uh, environmentally responsibly than the next owner, right? The next mm-hmm. operator. Sure. And so, you know, now you have this game of like, nothing was accomplished. There was no net reduction in emissions. You're just forcing them to play emissions hot potato with their asset. And it's, it's really, it's a shame. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, there, there is a, an undercurrent of um, necessity with ESG, um, but there is, some well-deserved scrutiny. I think it's these kind of um, sort of accounting tricks, if you will, like that get incentivized in order to meet an ESG target, um, which are driving a lot of the scrutiny and a lot of the uh, um, the pushback. And I think some of that's yeah. very well-deserved. Um, and so the question is, how do you change that back into, you know, here's what a real impact looks like. Yes. Um, the yeah. letter of the law is different than the intent of yes. the law. And, and that's the situation we're dealing with here. Uh, fellas, this was a lot of fun. I have a feeling I'll bring both, both of you back to continue this conversation at some point. And final thought on the personal carbon you know, emissions tracking, really just Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Because if you're sitting on a yacht and flying <laughs> private, you don't get to just virtue signal from there, man. That's not fair. His emissions footprint's bigger than mine, and I'm not virtue signaling. So we'll leave it there. Thank you, fellas. Thank you.